0: Lock Talk Radio Choices, decisions Frustrations and pain Knowing I'm going To forget her I will love them. I will love them while I still can.
1: Well, hello everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, and I am your host today and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. And I'm just thrilled that you can join us. We're going to have a wonderful show. I, I just love my job because it's so much fun getting to know um, different people all around the world and how they're dealing with Alzheimer's. And we've got a couple of people that are, are just going to be fantastic resources for us today. But before I do their introductions, I always like to tell people about Alzheimer's Speaks because we get new listeners around the world all the time who don't really know who Alzheimer's Speaks is or what we're about. So let me just take a moment just to share um, our mission with you. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, um, what we are is we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe by joining forces in sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss. And together, we can help everyone understand the true needs of this disease and and march on forward. At our core, we really believe that collaboratively, we're going to win this battle against dementia. And I just need to thank all of our listeners for all that you have done for Alzheimer's Speaks, because even though many of you don't think your little clicks mean a lot, they do. Every time you like us and share us and tweet us, you're helping spread awareness. You're passing on free resources to people. And so you hold a lot of power. And I really appreciate your help in terms of spreading awareness and education. And we know we're making a difference because ShareCare and Dr. Oz recognized Alzheimer's Speaks as the number one influencer online uh for Alzheimer's. And we wouldn't we wouldn't be there. We wouldn't have that recognition without you. So I just want you to understand, again, the power that you hold, especially in social media these days, is is pretty incredible. So if you like the show um, and you want to share us and tweet us, or you can even embed these shows um, on your websites, please feel free to do that because it's, again, It's all about working together uh, to raise awareness and giving voice to those who are afflicted with the disease as well as their care partners, both personal and professional. And maybe, just maybe, you might be our next guest on the show. If you think you have a story or a passion that needs to be told about dementia or caregiving, please reach out to me. Uh, you can do that uh, through the radio show or you can go to our our main website, which is just alzheimerspeaks.com and uh, click on the big contact button at the top and uh, shoot me an email. I'd love to talk to you, and uh, we, can, we can speak further. We, um, we also want to uh, know that if you're interested in joining the conversation, you can easily do that today. So if you're listening by your computer, you can utilize your chat box and just... Um, Uh, type in your question or comment and push enter in that little white box under where it says online users. Uh, Then there's kind of a a bold and a a font thing. There's a little box there and that's where you would type your comment in and I'll be monitoring that throughout the show. You can also call in live and that number is 714-364 Four seven five seven. Again, that's seven one four three six four four seven five seven. And then you'll just be asked to push one to get into my queue and when there's an opening I will go ahead and pull you into the show. I always like to mention also a couple of resources up front. Uh, for those of you looking for support anywhere in the world, you can go to Alzheimer's Disease International, known as ADI, and you can go to the Alzheimer's Speaks website. Under the uh, About page, there's a page called Sponsors, and there'll be a link directly there and you can find an association anywhere in the world. Um, Music First is also a a company that I I just love to uh, talk about because they're doing such cool things with the power of music, and they have a really neat app called Music First, which is a wonderful, wonderful source, and uh, you can actually get some free time testing that out um, as well. And then Alzheimer's Studies has some clinical trials available uh... if you want to get involved with that and then the Lewy Body Association there's so many people with Lewy Body Dementia uh... that don't quite know where to go and there is an actual association for them so I just, I just want to make people aware of that so with no further ado I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first guest uh, Linda Burhans is um, an accomplished woman on many many levels Uh, She conducts uh, her business uh, affairs basically in the Tampa Bay area of Florida, and her personal mission is to acknowledge and appreciate all people. What a great mission. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if we all lived our lives like that? Over the past 30 years, um, she has been in a variety of leadership positions in corporate America, and she's now one of Tampa Bay's leading women entrepreneurs. Linda is the founder and CEO of The Party Crew and uh, CEO of SendTheCard123.com. And um, today we're going to be discussing with Linda her recent published book, um, "Good Night and God Bless," which is a collection of wonderful memories of her loving mother. The book is humorous and heartfelt um, stories, which I think um, inspire and will re- really will assist anybody who is being challenged with caring for a loved one because we all know that is no
2: easy task.
1: So welcome Linda. How are you
2: today? Joyful and grateful and glad to be here.
1: There she is, living her mission. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Well I know you were traveling yesterday and we were kind of going back and forth with emails and iPhones mm-hmm. and, and all kinds of stuff. It just amazes me with technology, what we can do. Um before we get started uh talking about your your book, can you just give our audience a little background? Um, it's always nice for them to know if you've been personally touched by anybody who has had dementia, you know, family or friends, et cetera.
2: Well, actually, um, I took care of my mother the last 18 months of her life. Uh, I had moved to Florida a few years earlier from New York, and um, she finally decided to move down here by me. and. Um, she moved down here in June of '06, and in October of 06, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, So, and she also had dementia. So I took care of my mom for the last 18 months of her life, and I must say it was one of the most um, trying but also joyful experiences of my life. And I, it was about five weeks before my mom passed away, and I had tucked her into bed, and she was very ill, and she said to me, good night and God bless, and she had said that to me a million times before. But I thought that was going to be the last night. And I went into her living room, and I prayed, Dear God, just give me a little bit longer. And the next morning, she woke up, and she looked great. And I said, I'm writing a book, and the title is Good Night and God Bless. And I started that moment. And I wrote through the last five weeks of her life and my grieving process, and then I reconstructed our adventure from the year before. And shortly after that, my book was published. And when I went out promoting the book, every single time, people would come up to me crying. And saying, I think I need help with mom. I think I need help with dad. What is dementia? What is what is caregiving? It was just. And I remember when I went through my experience, I ran around this little tornado saying, I can do it, I can do it. When half the time I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't. <laughs> I mean, you know how it goes.
1: Yep, yeah, I'm relating. That's why my giggle. It's like because you you do. You just get in that protective mode of a I want to do this and B I need to do this.
2: So I right. do it.
1: You know, I'll find, so let me I'll do find it. a
2: way. <laughs> yep. And that's what happened. So I decided I was a caregiver advocate. And I went out and started trying to find out all the resources that were possible for caregivers and get all the information I can. And then a home health care company who I had business coached the owner a few years back called me up and said, what are you doing? How can we work together? So I now do six to ten support groups or workshops a week for family caregivers, professional caregivers, um, about Alzheimer's, about dementia, about just caregiving in general, and just all the facets of the things that go with it. And it's been quite a journey. And every single day I learn something new from these support groups. Every single day we find another idea and another way that can make the journey easier.
1: Oh, I, I believe that. Can you, how, how big are your support groups that you do?
2: Um, some support groups are 10 people, some are 30 I'm starting a new group starting uh, next month that's going to be called Caregiver Clubhouse, and it's going to be a support group just for men. Because I find out uh, in many of my groups, it's mostly women, and the men don't say too much, but then they wait till the group's at- finished, and then they speak to me by themselves for like an hour. So I said, what would you think if we did a group just for men, and they are all for it?
1: Oh, so I think that's that a soon. great idea. I think that's yeah, a I'm great idea. Yeah, I'm really excited idea. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that'll that go over, I think, extremely well. That'll be fantastic. I'm
2: very excited about it. And they're all excited about it, which is great, because they're, they're looking to share with someone else that they feel that they're on the same page with.
1: Yeah, I think women are much better about sharing and talking, you know, about those types of things and men aren't. And so to give them a platform in order to do that um, and to be around you know others that understand i i think would be a really nice safe um way to frame things so that's that's really cool that's
2: really yeah, cool. Yeah, i have so many men come into the group and and they're like we you know we had no idea how much women do especially <laughs> if it's a man who's been you know a man who's taking care of his wife he goes i don't know how she did everything her whole life and now i have to do all this stuff and i don't i don't know how to do it you know sometimes they'll bring their loved one to the support group with them and and they'll say to me, "Does her outfit match today?"
1: I say, "You did a great
2: job. You did oh, a great right. job."
1: Oh, how cute! I remember my dad. You know, when my mom, my mom spent on this journey for thirty years, and um, she, you know, she started having problems in her mid-fifties. So they were pretty young. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, my dad, he didn't do any household work. I mean, he, you know, he was in charge of the cars and the outside of the house. Right. And, you know bringing the bacon that kind of thing and exactly all of a sudden I mean my dad literally couldn't boil water and he stepped up to the plate so beautifully cooking yeah. and cleaning and shopping and doing the wash and caring for her and it was as a as a child it was amazing to watch. Right. And I, re- I remember having a conversation with him one day, and, you know, he kind of said the same thing. Hey, I had no idea <laughs> there was so yeah. much to do. But he also said, um, I owe this to your mom.
2: Yeah. You know, well, most of the men be- that are in my groups, be- they've been married 50 years.
1: Yeah. And he said, She would do it for me. She's been doing it for me all, you know, the whole time we've been married. Um, there's there's absolutely no question, you know, exactly. for him not to do it. Um, but I think one of the tough things is asking for help, too. And I know that that's something that you kind of wanted to talk about. So why don't we go ahead? We'll just kind of mix up a, our format yeah. here and just go with the flow well, and, and talk about that because I think it's I, so important.
2: I, I call it the AAA dilemma. Um, caregivers do not ask for help, they do not accept help, and they do not acknowledge themselves. And you know there's many studies out there that more and more caregivers today are dying before the person they're taking care of.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
2: think a lot of it is just for those reasons. And I can remember one time, this was shortly after my mom had passed away, and I was in a supermarket and I met a friend of mine. She said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing okay. And she said, Linda, I'm sick of hearing that from you. She goes, I have to let you know that when you were taking care of your mom, you stole my joy. And I was like, What? Mm-hmm. And she said, every time I asked if I could help you, you said, oh, no, I'm okay, and I could see you swimming in quicksand. Why wouldn't you let me help you? And it just, a light bulb went off in my head. Because uh-huh. People are asking to help because they want to help you. But I think the biggest thing with caregivers is when the question is asked, they just don't know how to respond. They don't know what to say. They can't think of, well, what, what. what can I accept help with? So I suggest to caregivers to take a little bit of time to sit down and make a list of some things that you can accept help with. So this way when your neighbor comes over and says, hey, is there something I can do for you, you can pull the list out of your pocket and say, maybe you could mow my grass? And your neighbor's going to say, yeah, I'd love to do that, because that's why they've been asking you all along. And a woman came to my workshop recently. I was wonderful. And she emailed me about a week or so later, and she said, Linda, I thought about what you said, and when I went home, I made a list, and I only put one thing on my list. And when anyone asks if they can help me now, I say, if you could come over any afternoon between 2 and 4 and let me take a nap, that would be wonderful. And her exact words were, and I'm as pleased as punch to tell you that I'm now napping seven days a week, and my husband is getting seven different visitors that stopped coming. What a win-win situation.
1: Yep. Wow, and and how sweet is that? Well, because we we let, you know, people can't help if we don't let them. I mean, right? <laughs> you know, we have to give them, uh, you know, a format to do that. Um, I was talking um with a man yesterday, the the CEO of Lots of Helping Hands, which is a, a nice nice tool for people to be able to ask for help and it's kind of like a a caring bridge on steroids where you know it doesn't even have to be the the, care, the, the primary caregiver who's coordinating it but it might be a friend who says right. let me let me coordinate meals or laundry or appointments or nap time or just conversations you know right. um, whatever type of respite it is and you know utilizing the technology we have uh, can make it so much easier, too, to be able to communicate updates and needs and and so forth. And so, um, you know, use whatever mode it is. You know, maybe it's tapping into, you know, uh, some neighborhoods have real tight circles. Others, it might be a church circle. Others, it might right. be friends or work, you know. And don't think you can only tap one circle.
2: Right. Right. You know,
1: everybody was your friend before. And so I think a lot of times people get frustrated that people leave their life. Well, sometimes we don't let them in.
2: Exactly. Exactly. You know, we're, and, and we're, we're too busy. We're, yeah, we're too busy. It, well, that's another thing I say to caregivers. We spend our whole time doing tasks, doing mm-hmm. tasks that sometimes we're missing the most important part of the caregiving experience and spending mm-hmm. time with our loved one, and having some time for ourselves so that we're strong enough to spend quality time with our loved one. But we're so worried every day about the tasks. That yeah. and this is what people say to me all the time, especially when their loved one passes, oh I wish I wouldn't have done all that, worried about keeping the house clean and everything else, I wish I would have spent some more time, I wish I And but they can't do it because they don't allow themselves. Yeah. Yep. And then sometimes I yep. don't even know how to spend that quality time. Like uh, around the holidays, a woman in one of my groups, her dad has Alzheimer's, and she said to me, this is going to be the best Christmas ever. I'm going to deck out the house. and." Bu-. I said, honey, slow down for a second here. I said, mm-hmm. first of all, if you deck out the house and you have all those lights flashing and everything, it could be very upsetting to your dad. Mm-hmm. I, she said, well, what am I going to do? I said, make his favorite meal and just spend a day of joy. Play cards watch a movie, or pull out the old photo albums. She said to me, Linda, he won't know any of the people in the pictures. I said, just pull out the old photo albums. Well, she called me like a week after Christmas. She said it was the best Christmas I ever had. She said, I pulled out the photo albums, and he didn't know one person in the photos, but he knew every car. That was a 1947 Ford, and he told a story about it. That was, you know, a 52 Chevy, and he told a story about it. And then she said to me, the next day I thought about it, and that not, might not have even been the car I was talking about, but I didn't care. We had a great time.
1: Yeah, and, and that's I, I, that's the whole point. It's the conversation. My daughter, for example, and um, her boyfriend a few years ago it was so cute, they would go up and talk with my mom about cars, because that's what the boyfriend liked, you know, to mm-hmm. talk about. And all of a sudden, they're talking about, it was hilarious, they're talking about pink Cadillacs and sound systems, and spinners, which my mom doesn't even know what a spinner is, but she wanted (laughs) her pink Cadillac, and they just have this fun, fun, lighthearted conversation of dreaming, you know, and we all like to dream, and, you know, somebody with dementia is no different, you know, so to be able to be in that world, and uh, to this day, she still talks about, you know, grandma talking about the pink Cadillac. And yeah. you know the spinners and the sound system. So don't don't lose those gifts that are before you because you know you think it's not proper. You know.
2: You know, it's interesting. I, I I also speak to youth groups about playing it forward. It's a game everyone wins. And there was a boy in this one youth group, and he was really struggling with reading. And his parents hold down like three jobs. They got three kids, and there's just no one to help him there's also a gentleman who's been confined to bed for two years and he has dementia and he's a retired English teacher and it, he just loves people to read to him so mm-hmm. I went and met with the man and said if we have this little boy that really needs help in reading would it be alright if he came and read to you two days a week and then we went to the little boy and we said we have this man that's very lonely and just would like a boy to come read to him do you think you could do that? And he said sure well, I met the little boy a few weeks later and he said to me Mrs. Burhands, did they have milk boxes outside your house when you were a kid? I said, yeah, they did. And the woman called her husband, Mr. Ornery. And she said to me, Linda, on the two days a week, Mr. Ornery knows that Michael's coming. He's happy all day. Michael's learning a history that's going to be lost if we don't speak to our seniors. And at the end of the school period, Michael's reading grade went up from a C to an A. Mm Mm-hmm. So what can we do? We can just connect people. We can just listen. We mm-hmm. can just spend some time. And kids know how to do that many times easier than adults do.
1: Yeah. Well, because they're used to playing, and they're they're yeah. they're not inhibited. You right, know, right. And they don't have any fear. Yeah. Adults Adults have all these rules and. Social etiquette <laughs> they're yeah. worried about you know how's it gonna look, you know, what are other people gonna think, and yeah. kids, kids just say, "Hey, we're gonna have fun, you know exactly, so, so why aren't we so there's there's so much that they can teach us. In that process, that's uh, mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. I think the intergenerational thing is is really neat because, I mean, there's been so many studies to, um, with, with kids and with pet therapy where people just, they come out of their shell, you know, because yeah. they know it's kind of playtime. It's, com- it's comfortable time. It's not going to be, you know, challenging. It's not going to be, um, you know, set in rules. And it, they just know. They just know, yep. even even in very end stages, um, they're very aware. Um, I, again, I'll, I'll give an example. If my mom, we would have a birthday party for her, and she would be sleeping. We'd, we'd have, like, this party, and we'd all get together for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, and mom would last maybe 20 minutes to 30 minutes, and the rest of the time she'd be sleeping. Um, but when she was with us, she was really with us. And when she was sleeping, you know, I mean, we really thought she was sleeping. And the little kids were playing under the table. And it was so interesting to watch her because she would be, she would appear sleeping. And she would always know about two seconds before they popped out from under the table. <laughs> and she would wake up and she'd giggle. And then, poof, they, there they'd be. And we all wow. were like, what is she giggling about? And she, she knew. She knew the kids that's were coming. That's
2: wonderful. You know, so I think there's this
1: connection on different levels that we don't appreciate and that we overlook uh, because it's so simple just for someone to talk to us <laughs> and right. give us a direct answer. You know, that's that's really what we're used to. Yeah. Well, it sounds... Now, your groups, I'm I'm assuming for that you do, are all in the Tampa, Tampa Bay area then?
2: Yes. Yeah. Pretty soon, hopefully, I'm going to start doing some webinars. But right now, they're in the Tampa Bay area. Um, but I'm willing to travel for seminars, you know, to anywhere in the United States. That's not a problem. Um, but right now, they're mostly in the Tampa Bay area. I think I'm one of the first caregiver advocates around. I think I've created mm-hmm. this new little position for myself, and it's my hope to start training other people to do the same thing mm-hmm. because we all can use some help. And, you know, because the caregivers are just like in in such that, that – the wonderful thing is when they come into a support group, at my if it's at my office, I also then have a resource room.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So after the support group, they can go into the resource room. And there's all information about Alzheimer's, dementia, you know, local resources, all sorts of things that they don't have to think about here. Just take the information. Here, this is someone I trust. And that's been wonderful. And I do now, a weekly blog in and in a local newspaper, too, so that's been helping with some more awareness also. Okay.
1: Now, is there a fee for people to attend your group?
2: or No, they're how, all free of charge. Okay. They're all free so of how, charge.
1: So how are those funded then? I mean, do you have funds? The home health care company
2: that I work with pays me a salary. To okay. go out and do this community service. Wonderful. So I speak in in churches, and YMCAs, and libraries, and ALFs, and wherever wherever they need the help. I do a lot of journaling workshops. Um, uh-huh. Journaling, you know, journaling for, for your feelings, journaling for your grief, or journaling for your memories. You know, yep. depending on whatever you want to do. I, I I've been doing a lot of of um, of workshops recently. About um, grieving for a loved one with dementia and Alzheimer's, because many caregivers say that the hardest part of caregiving is not the practical side, but in fact the emotional side. Mm -hmm. You know, can be heartbreaking. It can be a heartbreaking experience watching your loved one slip away more and more each day. And I think people don't realize that they're they're going through that grief as they experience their daily losses, which can range from loss of income, freedom, time, you know, the relationship you have with your loved one, and and health, just to name a few.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, and I think the loss of the relationship is, you know, the biggest thing I see people struggle with and not even realize it's happening.
2: Exactly. Because.
1: Because it well like how how could I lose my relationship? I'm I'm caring for them, I'm you know, I'm doing everything, but it's that it's the intimacy, it's the spontaneity, it's the fun that slips right. away. And you know, that that fun piece is kind of the core that brings us all together usually. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of the glue. And so I, I think that humor piece and that that intimacy is really important to somehow keep intact and yeah. um, and, and to really you know n- not lose your relationship because your roles have changed and, and that's a tough one that's a and, and I think families struggle with that as a whole. You know, um, even if, uh, you know, a husband or wife is caring for a loved one, um, the children's roles change as well, not maybe as significantly, um, right. but they still change. And it's important to not to not lose the core of who you were um, together, you know, in this right. process. Hopefully it helps build, you know, build that relationship yeah. and it brings you to new levels.
2: Okay. You know, I had a, a a woman come into my office. This was a, probably about six months ago, and she had just moved to Florida from Georgia. Her mother had just passed away. In fact, her parents had only lived here for like four months. And
3: mm-hmm. she had
2: lost her job in Georgia, and she was having some financial problems, so the family decided, well, you should move down to Florida and take care of Dad. I called mm-hmm. them the designated daughters. <laughs> and... <laughs> So she moves down here, and she doesn't even know where anything is, and her dad is really angry. Mm -hmm. So she walked into the support group that day. She's the only girl that showed up that day, and I say, who's ever supposed to be there is supposed to be there. And we talked for like two hours, and I told her about resources, and she started coming to some of my different support groups and workshops. And um, she called me a few months back, and she said, Linda, I have to tell you this story. She said, "Um, my sister came to visit. And her sister said to her, you look wonderful. What have you been doing? Because when she saw her six months previous, she was just a mess. Mm
0: -hmm. And she
2: said, well, one thing I'm doing for myself every day is I'm going out and I'm walking for an hour. I don't care if it's raining or whatever. I'm going out every day and I'm walking for an hour. And her dad is sitting there in a wheelchair and he says, well, it's nice. Somebody can go for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the sister goes, so what else have you been doing? Well, I've been going to these support groups and workshops and it's, it's, You know, I found out about resources, and it's helped me out a lot. And the dad goes, good for you. So the sister says, Dad, I just came to visit. If you're going to be, you know, I'm trying to have a nice conversation with my sister. If you're going to be so negative, we're going to go in the other room. He goes, go ahead, go. So they go in the other room, but he keeps listening. And she (laughs) says, one of the best things of all is I've been going to these journaling workshops where I can get my feelings out in a non-judgmental area and share if I want to or not. And the dad Mm -hmm. screams from the other room. Well, it's nice someone to get their feelings out. (laughs) So they go into him and they're like, Dad, we want to help you in any way we can. And years ago, he used to do some writing. They said, do you think maybe you would like to journal? Maybe. So they give him a book. And they said an hour later he wrote down one sentence, a couple hours later another. He did this for like three days. And then he took the book and he said, Here, here, you want to see how I feel? And they opened up the book and it said, I am so tired. I am so tired of being a burden to my family. I'm so tired of taking so many pills. I'm so tired of not being able to go out. I'm so tired of people looking at me like I'm an invalid, et cetera, et cetera. And the Mm -hmm. the sisters were heartbroken. Mm -hmm. He said, Dad, you're not a burden to us. You held down three jobs when we were kids. We want to take care of you. Dad, you know what? Maybe you are taking too many pills. Maybe we need to talk to the doctor about that. And they went down the entire list. Mm -hmm. She said to me, my dad wants to know, can he come to your journaling workshop this week? I said, (laughs) yes, he can. (laughs) So she pushes him in his wheelchair. He's a little 90-year-old Italian guy from Brooklyn who brought me the best meatballs I ever had in my life. And he tells the story, and then he says, do you want to hear my journal now? And he opens it up, and he says, "I, I am grateful that I have a family that takes care of me. I'm grateful Uh I'm not taking as many pills. I'm grateful when my daughter goes for her walk, I can go with her. She says Linda's changed everything in the house, everything, and now he's writing short stories for when he was a kid.
1: Oh, how beautiful.
2: So he needed to get his feelings out too.
1: Yep, yep. Well, and I think, you know, part of, you know, that whole feeling thing is, You gave them a safe place to acknowledge feelings because I think a lot of times we're ashamed by our feelings. We have this guilt and... You know, I, I shouldn't be feeling this way. This is what I need to do. And, and feelings aren't good or bad. They just are. It's our reaction to them. But we in society tend to blame our feelings and shun our feelings and smush them down and be embarrassed of them instead of just acknowledging that it's okay. We, we all got them. Right. <laughs> They're all stirring around in us. Uh, this isn't anything unique to any of us, but we think it is.
2: Oh, Lord, I have these little bottles filled with lavender water, and on the label it says spray away guilt, and I put them on the table, I put them on the table before the support group, I said, okay, let's get rid of the guilt here first. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. It's a wonderful thing, because people actually say, wow, yeah, I am feeling guilty.
1: Yep. Oh, yeah. And I don't have to. Yep.
2: Yeah. And some groups I have to bring like a gallon bottle. It depends, uh-huh. <laughs> but oh, it's just a it's a, it's a great opening for people.
1: Yeah, I I can see where that would be. That's and that's just kind of a cute, fun little way, you know, to just not take it so seriously, and to be right. able to to laugh about it, uh, because I think we get so dang serious in these roles. Uh, I, I know that and life I have is pretty not- funny. It, well yeah. Yeah. I sure Why think Life is pretty it. funny. Yeah, if we if we let it be, if we don't take it so seriously, um and if we don't think we can control everything. I to me that's right. one of our, our biggest hang ups is we actually think we can control. <laughs> yeah, that's us. pretty funny. And and it's like, you know, when you sit back and realize how asinine that is <laughs>
2: Yeah, so, you know, then you have to laugh
1: <laughs> uh, Yeah, because it's like Okay, there's how many factors involved here And you can't even list them all But you think you can control them all I mean, that is right. I, that, that, That's just so It uh, shows how crazy we are um, as, as a society As a world Because that's really what we teach You know, control yeah. and perfection It's That's the way of the world That's that's what we're yeah, striving for yeah, and it's uh, it's really backwards and it, you look at how much stress it causes, you know, yeah. trying to be perfect in, you know, and not just dementia, but I mean, you know, body images and, you know, alcohol and, and narcotics abuse and, I mean, all of that stuff, you know, um, all of those addictions and stuff are, are wrapped into not feeling good enough usually, you know. Right. Right. Uh, not meeting that image, not meeting standards And if they're protected by society, or sometimes we just put them on ourselves and, yeah. um, and and you know think that we need to live up to these standards that nobody else really cares about yeah. <laughs> you know, too um, very very interesting well let's talk about let's talk about your book and you know why you decided to write it you had touched you know that your mom had. Had the same, you know, all the time, and that was that kind of the trigger for you then to say, you know, this is this just needs to be, this needs to be the title. And and, it it was uh, just such a
2: profound experience, the whole caregiving experience with my mother. Never did I think I would be taking care of her. You know, she was the strong mom. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
2: I'm the oldest of four, and it was such an experience when when my mom was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer they made a suggestion about chemotherapy and i have a sister who's a nurse who was against it and my other sister her husband died at forty four from throat cancer so she really wasn't up for it either but my mother wanted to try it Mm -hmm. so we did two rounds and and she was out flat it was terrible it was just Mm -hmm. killing her faster so we decided as a family to stop doing that and when we did my mother told everyone she was cured
1: Mm -hmm. Now, I don't
2: know if she thought she was cured, she wanted to be cured, or she wanted everybody else to think she was cured, but you know what you put in your head? Yeah. So we had a wonderful year where I was with her every single day except one day when I went to jury duty.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And we just tried to laugh about everything and find the joy in everything. I just wanted to find the time to spend with her and to really let her know how much I appreciated her because here I'm out at that time I was doing appreciation marketing seminars and talking to people about appreciating one another. And, and I'm thinking, my mom's in her final year. Mm-hmm. And I can remember one day she was at my house, and I was in my office, and she was sitting in my den watching uh, one of those judge shows, which she always has something to say about. Uh-huh. And I walked in the room, and she was just staring at her hands. And I was like, Mama, what? And she said, oh, I'm just looking at these old, ugly, arthritic hands. And they were pretty banged mm-hmm. up. And I said, normally I would have said, oh, Mama, those hands are just fine. Oh, Mama, mm-hmm. here's some hand cream. But I'm thinking, Linda, put your money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and I took her hands in my hands and I said, Ma, besides how many dishes you told me these hands have washed and how many clothes, my mother didn't get a washing machine until the fourth child.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember her
2: washing those clothes and hanging them on the line. I said, these hands have combed my hair and wiped my tears. These hands have held my daughter and hold my grandchildren. Mom, these are the best hands in the world. And my mother just ever so softly said to me, thank you, Linda. And that was one of the most profound moments in my life. And what did it take, 30 seconds? Well, you got me in tears. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they do say on my next printing of my book, I need to put a little label that says mascara-free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: wear your, wear your waterproof stuff Well, you know, yeah. but it is, it's those little things that are the biggest packages in life
2: Yeah, and 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 we just, you know, we had a great year It was, like, I would take her to networking meetings with me And you know when you go to a networking meeting You get to stand up and do your 30-second or 60-second commercial Uh-huh Well, my my mom would stand up and she'd say Hi, my name is Joan I'm Linda's mother, I just moved here from New York, and I just want to find a man with a lot of money that just wants to be my friend.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and everybody would laugh. And So Thanks. she kind of fit in. And mm-hmm. she was always like the jokester, so she was joking through her illness. She was showing people a different way to live. Yep. And just that whole year, you know, I, I journaled a lot more that year, you know, like, if you saw my journal the day that we found out she had cancer, it's scribbled and cried on and everything else. But then, when you see my journal on other days where we just had a lovely time together, and I wanted people to know that they can, their caregiving experience can be the worst experience of your, of your life, or it can, or it can be downright beautiful depending on how you handle it. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it, and it may not be consistent
2: through the whole no. journey
1: and that's okay cuz life has its ups and downs and so again get that perfection model out of the way it's it's kind of like being on a diet and you you know you might you know jump off and grab a donut but you know you get back on the wagon and <laughs> and you yeah. the scene again it's it's okay to go there it's just not okay to stay there cuz then there's other issues right. going on you know with with depression or your whatever it might be so um yeah it, it's really yeah, important I, to to have that balance and what i always tell people is remember you can't have a high without a low right you can't you can't have joy without sadness because there's yep. no measurement yeah. and you know so it's important to remember and and capture and appreciate those sad and difficult times just as much as it is capturing those joyful times. Granted, you want to stay in different zones longer with that, but, right. you know, both are beautiful and both teach us lessons.
2: You know, I, I can remember times driving in the car with my mother and she'd, I'd have to pull over to the side of the road because she was sick.
0: Mm-hmm. And she would
2: get sick and sometimes she'd get sick on herself and then she'd be embarrassed. And old Linda, make it, and I'd be, it's okay, Mom. It's okay. And we would go home and we would get her all cleaned up. And then I'd put in an I Love Lucy movie. I'd make her a shake. We'd put some insure in it that she didn't want to drink, that she didn't know was in the shake. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: And we would just laugh about it. We would just laugh about it. It would be okay. Mm-hmm. It would be okay. Or I see other people, something like that happens, and they can be upset for the rest of the day.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it doesn't do it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do them any good. You know. I think the question we have to ask ourselves, and and we have to ask ourselves this often: How would I want to be treated? Exactly. You know. And and it you know all of us. I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't want to be treated in a dignified, respectful fashion. Exactly. And I don't know. And I don't know of anyone who doesn't want to laugh. And I don't know
2: anyone who doesn't want to be loved.
1: Exactly. And so if we keep those in mind in terms of how are we going to respond, um, I think that that's really, really um, a a critical piece. You know, it makes us slow down and, again, appreciate what's important. I have um, your memory chip, which is a tool people can get on my website, which just teaches people... Um, three things, you know, to focus on. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? Because those, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the basics of life that we all want. And right. and then it's easier to deliver those tasks when we focus on those things. And then we can let go of a lot of the crap that we thought was important before. Right. You know, time right. and date, the names, they're really not that big of a deal in the scheme of right.
2: things. You know, it's... Well, it's funny, I sometimes think, I do to support groups someone comes in and it'll be their first time and they'll start and she had an operation on June 23rd and then on June 29th this happened and then you know and they go through that whole litany of yep. everything and then someone else in the support group will say stop just tell me how you're feeling yep. and they realize that whole story wasn't that important the important thing was how are you feeling
1: yep. but we think it's important and we think that list is all about them, so it's person-centered. But it really isn't because if we look at that list and if we listen to even the tone of the voice and how we feel about each of those tasks, (laughs) it becomes very apparent that list is all about us and really not about the other person. Emotionally, it's about us. And we, right. where we are in that space with it, which is not, you can't be person-centered if it's all about you, even though the list is about them. And exactly. And lists, lists give us control or this, per, you know, perceived.
2: Uh, yeah, perceived.
1: <laughs> yeah, perceived control. You know, and it does, it feels good to check that off and, and look busy and, you know, look like you're accomplishing something because you feel so out of control because you just yes. want it to all go away and it can't. And so so how did you get to the acceptance part of, you know, being able to just grab your mom's hands and tell tell her how beautiful they are and how how productive they've been and how loving they are? You know, you know what the, they mean there was,
2: it, I just loved my mother so much that there just was no choice there. Mm-hmm. The choice was to appreciate her as much as I could because I knew that she was, you know, I knew she had a limited time.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, the
2: doctor said one year, and it was just about one year. You know, it was a little more than one year. So I knew that, and I was like, I, I just need to spend this time with her. I I just you know she she brought up four kids and most of the time was by herself and she always worked hard and she always had a good attitude and she always laughed
0: mm-hmm. you know and she
2: always helped other people and never really had anybody helping her and this was the time I could help her but not make it seem like I was helping her just like I was on this adventure with her mm-hmm. you know it was funny we went on a, a, a cruise one time you know all the photos they take on the cruise. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to buy every photo because these are going to be some of the last photos of my mom. And mm-hmm. the last night of the cruise, they dress us up in these, like, old fashioned outfits. And mm-hmm. they take a picture of my mom holding this rifle with, like, this scowl on her face.
0: <laughs> and it says they
2: put it on in, like, a wanted poster. And it said, wanted. Million dollar reward. So I have a greeting card company, so I take that photo and I download it onto a whole bunch of cards. And my mother sent them to all her friends up north. And all it said inside the card was, Dear Lori, got in a little trouble in Mexico. Please pray for me. (laughs) And it was wonderful because everyone laughed and everyone that called her was laughing. No one called her to say, Are you dying? No Uh one called to talk about the sickness. They called for a laugh. And
1: they got,
2: oh, right. yeah. Right, and she got to chat with them, and they chatted with her. And if we hadn't done that, some of those conversations never would have happened.
1: Yep. Yeah. Some of those
2: goodbyes never would have happened.
1: Yeah, the way we frame things is is really important. Um I remember when we had um, my my dad had brain cancer. They gave him a year and a half. He lived four and a half. But wow. at, the, at the end, um, we knew that he wasn't going to make it till their 50th wedding anniversary. And mm-hmm. so we threw this party together in two weeks, and we had about, I don't know, 200, 250 people show. And my parents renewed their vows. And the reason I share this is just because it's how we frame and set things up um, yep. is really important. So the, the, the renewing of the vows was just for family. And everybody who came in was really upset, you know, when they found out that they had renewed their vows and they weren't there. Mm -hmm. But what happened was we were all bawling because we knew it wasn't really a renewing of the vows. It was my dad's last goodbye to my mom. Right. Now I'm (laughs) going to (laughs) cry. And this was 10, 11 years, oh gosh, almost 12 years ago. And so, but when all these new people came in, um, it was it pulled us all out and up even though some of them were highly offended that they weren't you know part of that mm-hmm. i explained to them afterwards we would have been a bawling heap just a one big mass exactly. of 150 people crying instead of celebrating life we would have all been sad thinking about yep. the passing and he's still here you know, and so it, let's celebrate, let's engage, and that's exactly what happened. And it was, it was really probably one of the best events in my entire life I've ever been to. I would say it is in terms of the way people came together and shared stories and laughter, and it was, it was just such a blessing, such yeah. a blessing. But, but it is on how we frame things.
2: Um, well, you know, the last two years of my dad's life, he was confined to a bed. Confined mm-hmm. to a bed in Greenwich Village, torture for the man, the man that was, uh-huh. you know, always out there and doing things. And uh, the church that I go to, they um, they mainstream the service on Sundays on the computer for people that can't come out of their homes. Mm-hmm. I had mentioned to that to my dad one day when I visited there. And then one Sunday I'm coming out of church and my phone rings and I pick it up and my dad goes, I like that red dress you got on. Because he's watching <laughs> the church service and he sees me in the church, uh, and they yeah. would call me at other times and said, "Did you listen to what the minister said today?" But he was still living. Yeah. He was still living through me and with me. And, and how that was what cool that's. Was that? Oh my God! It was so cool. It was so. Go- I have a website in honor of my dad. It's called the Dave Game. It's about random acts of kindness. Um. Uh-huh. Can I just tell you my favorite story about that?
0: Yes, please. Please do.
2: This was a couple of years ago. I'm in a drugstore, and I'm looking at some things, and I can see the prescription counter, and there's three people waiting online. And the last person online is a young woman with a baby, and the baby's crying, and it's very obvious that the baby is ill. And she gets to the head of the line, and the pharmacist says, oh, we don't have that medication right now. We can get a few in about two hours. And one tear just went down her face. Well, there was an older gentleman sitting on the side, and he came over to her, and he said, Can I of assistance to you? And she said, What? He said, I don't have too much to do today, and I have to wait for my prescription so I could get yours if you want and bring it to your house. Well, the girl's eyes get, like, huge, and people in the store start checking out this conversation. And he goes, I'm not a creeper or anything. I, I, I'll just leave it by the by the door and ring the bell. Mm-hmm. And the girl says... But but why? I don't even know you. And he said, well, to tell you the truth, I live on a very limited income. And my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren all live up north. And I really get to see them. So this would kind of be a privilege for me. Mm. So the girl looks up and everybody in the store kind of starts like nodding their heads, like, yeah, he's okay. And she writes down her name and address and gives it to the man. And it was like something from TV. It was like the heavens opened. You know, the baby stopped crying, and everybody in the store is happy, and she walks out, and I'm bawling. Uh-huh. And I go over to the gentleman. Of course, the website about Random Acts of Kindness is a Dave game. And I said to him, do you know you just daved her? And he goes, I just what?" <laughs> so I told him about the Dave game, and his name was Michael McNamara. He was 82 years old, and he and I became friends after that. We had breakfast and lunch a couple of times. So he calls me three months later. He says, Linda, you're not going to believe this. The girl's name was Julie. He says to me, Julie told all her friends what I did with the prescription, and they all chipped in and sent him airfare to visit his family.
0: And it was the last
2: time he saw his family before he passed away. Wow. Huge.
1: Yep. The, The power we all hold and we take advantage of. Um, By not appreciating doing those little things for others and, you know, setting that example and and getting people to talk about goodness instead of crisis all the time, you know, it just drives me bananas, the news, you know, and and everything on is is just crisis and upheaval and, you know, why can't we hear more stories like that? Why can't we teach our, our children? you know how oh, my, my
2: dad was thrilled every time I would call him and tell him a new story, Dad, look what this person did today or look how somebody helped somebody. He was just delighted. Yep. You know Yeah. And I and another thing I'd like to say too, you know, I remember when my dad first became ill he had a series of strokes and cancer and things and and he couldn't talk to me on the phone.
1: huh. And
2: I felt so because I was in Florida and he was in New York and I was like heartbroken that I couldn't communicate with him. So what I did, this was like 10 years ago, I got myself a little cassette recorder. And every morning I'd say, good morning, Dad, it's Tuesday, January 5th, and I'm leaving the house now, and I'm going here. And I would talk for a while, and then I'd say, oh, I'm in public, the bananas are good today, or I just got a new client or whatever. And I would do this all day long, and at the end of the day, I would end it in big band music. And i sent send mm-hmm. him a cassette tape every day for 90 days until he was well enough to speak to me again. Well, I don't know who that was a gift to me or to him, mm-hmm. because it was wonderful for all of us. He could still be a part of what was going on, even though he was ill, and he could hear me anytime he wanted to. Yeah. Well, so it, we it, need to he, find creative ways.
1: Yep. And for you, you knew you were connecting with him. You knew you were making a difference for him, which then is just a it, it's it's a gift ten times back. You know, for right. ourselves. When we do those things, um, you know, it's very, very neat to say. Well, I cannot believe our time is like flying by. We've got like seven minutes left in our <laughs> hour here. Um, can you tell us, because I, I really want to talk a little bit about your book, what will people find in your, in your book? Um,
2: Compassion, love, understanding, and humor, I would think. And the funny thing is every time someone reads the book, they email me and say, "Oh, my mom did that same thing, and it's always different. Oh and we went through that same experience. oh, I felt the same way, but the best emails I receive or calls are when they say, "I finished reading your book, and I called my mother. Mhm, I finished reading your book, and I decided I need to change and spend some more time with my mom. I'm like, "Thank you God." Thank yep. you, God. And this month on Kindle, my book is on sale for $0.99. Cents. Wow. So if anybody's interested, um, they can get it on Kindle for $0.99. Cents.
1: Oh, highly, highly encourage people to do that. And you want to tell people the name of the book again?
2: Good night, Good night and God bless. Okay.
1: Um, Annie, is there a, a special story or anything from the book that you'd just like to share with people, or how they should utilize it? Is it, you know, is it a book? Uh, you know, a lot of times people think,
2: do I have to sit down and read
1: the whole thing? How long is it?
2: You know, it's not. It's a, most people a, read it in one sitting. Most okay. people say they read it in one sitting. Um, I didn't want it to be too thick and heavy for people. I wanted them to be able to get through it easily. Um, some of the stories I've told already, my mom in the photo and and some other stories I don't want to tell the whole book <laughs>
0: um
2: but I think they'll find um joy and comfort in it wonderful
1: and um now, if someone is interested in having you come out and do some speaking or training or helping them maybe set up some um support groups, how do they how, what's the best way to reach you, Linda
2: um my email is Linda. Burhans at AOL.com. My website is www.lindaburhans.com, so it's L I N D A B U R H A N S.com. Or they can also reach me through Harmony Home Health. Um, if they go to the website, it's Harmony. Um, It tells you where I am every day on the calendar as far as support groups and workshops. Um, My weekly blog is on there, so they can always contact me that way also. Or my telephone, which is uh, area code 727-365-8383. Wonderful. Well, I thank you so
1: much for being with us. It's just—it's really been a joy to have you um, here and to um, to just to have this conversation. It's time just flew by, and you know, it, it flies by when you're having fun and connections are being made. And I I know uh, for a fact that you've made connections with with others. Um, in our audience as well, even though we didn't get any comments coming in, sometimes we do sometimes we don't um, it was just fascinating to to listen to you and to you can really hear your mission of life come through um, through your passion. so I appreciate all the work that you're doing and and I wish you a blessed week and we'll definitely stay in touch, okay Thank
2: you, my new friend, and have a delicious day.
1: okay, bye now Bye. What a fun conversation that was. Before I uh, introduce our next guest here, I'm just going to do kind of a a mid-break here and give you some updates. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our last radio show, which was about the Brand project for dementia, with Gary LeBlanc and the hospital in Florida, I, I really recommend that you do that because this, this'll be a, a game changer for healthcare um and we'd love to see you be involved in that. We also talked about incontinent solutions and um it was kind of fascinating. Learning, you know, what how much can be saved not only in dollars but in our landfills with the new products that are available there. Our next show coming up is going to be um, at a little different time. It's going to be, for the U.S., it will be July 16th, but I'm going to be interviewing a group of early onset, uh, people with early onset dementia over in Australia. And so we're going to be talking about living a full life with early onset. And Christine Bryden is going to be one of those people who she's just absolutely fascinating. You you may have seen her in some of the videos and, and posts that I've done on the blog. So would, um, I would really highly recommend that you tune into that show July 16th. That'll be at 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. um Pacific time, and then uh, over in Australia, it will be on the 17th at 11 a.m. Our last Dementia Chats, we talked about the Purple Angel Project for Dementia Aware, kind of government versus dementia as a whole and how they're dealing with it, and then words that we choose um, to describe caregiving, caregiver um carer, companion, uh, and had just a really interesting conversation on what people thought about those words. Our next Dementia Chats is actually going to be this afternoon, and that will be at 2 p.m. Central, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 12 um, Pacific Time. And you can go to the AlzheimerSpeaks.com website for the link on that um, or go to the blog, and there's a specific um, a specific post on that that'll get you directly there, the other items I want to mention were uh, just past blogs since our last show uh, there's a really cool clothing protector or bib um, that some people call it that is is uh, done in a helpful way to engage people and so there's an article on that there was a um, Caregiver Support Marathon, which was three hours on the PWR network, and there were six top experts in the field of caregiving. I happen to be one of them, but really interesting uh, conversations that you might want to listen to put in uh, as background music. I was also interviewed on Cross Lake Radio, um, and that was just a a short stint, uh, I think 30 minutes on that. And... For those of you who are not aware of the new book by Max Wallach and uh, Carolyn Given, I highly recommend this book. It's the best dementia book that I have seen. It targets children, but it has lessons for all of us. And it's called Why Did Grandma put her underwear in the refrigerator. It's an absolutely marvelous, marvelous book and we're going to be having uh, Max and Carolyn on the show here in the future. I'll let you know when that when that comes up. Uh, there are also a couple of um, uh, videos. It was just a great dementia video series called Remember to Live, which which again was um, very, very interesting. So with no further ado, let me go ahead and introduce our next guest. I'm very excited to have him with us, and uh, I am supposed to say hello uh, to, to Dr. Stephen Hume from Michael Ellenbogen. Uh, He's not sure he's going to be able to make it today, but they are cohorts and and some things that they do. Uh, Dr. Hume was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in May of 2007 at the age of 60. Prior to his diagnosis, uh, he was a clinician, consultant, and senior manager in the behavior health field. He has his doctorate in clinical and organizational psychology And in uh, uh, 1982, Dr. Hume co-founded Affirm, Inc., which is uh, one of the first private employee assistance companies in Massachusetts. He's been a clinician for over 35 years he's a past member of the alzheimer's association national board of directors and is currently a board member of the alzheimer's association massachusetts and new hampshire new hampshire chapter he's also a member of the chapters early stage advisory board and the advocacy committee he was uh, a recipient of the peter murray uh, inspiration Award in 2013, and he was, uh, and this was awarded by Myra Kraft Community MVP award by the New England Patriots, and the owner was Robert Kraft. He, um, as a member on the National Early Stage um, Advisory Group, has spoken. To lots of different groups in 2009 he uh, he spoke for the public policy forum and he was a principal speaker at the 2010 uh, candlelight rally in Washington DC and if if anyone has ever been out there for that rally it is probably one of the most gorgeous settings he has helped write the principles for a dignified diagnosis, and in 2010 he became an Alzheimer's ambassador. He travels extensively for the association, and in the past two years he's spoken at multiple events in 18 states. He was a keynote speaker at Southeast Florida chapter. Um, and he's participated, um, at the National Institute of Health Forum, uh, for outcome measures as well. He spoke, uh, in 2010 at the White House briefing on the challenges of Alzheimer's disease in the United States, and he was the keynote speaker at the Mississippi Department of Mental Health Annual Alzheimer's Conference. So, um... Steve is quite accomplished here, and we are just so blessed to have him with us today. He lives in uh, Massachusetts with his life partner, Candace. So welcome, Steve. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing well.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Michael wasn't sure he was going to be able to make the show, so he said, make sure I say I say hi, so I said, I will do that. I'll I'll give a shout out for <laughs> for you. He he said you'll have a great conversation with this man. He's uh he's pretty profound, um, doing oh, great wow. things.
3: Well that's something to live up to, I guess. There we go.
1: Yeah, yeah. So can you tell us, um you know, with this diagnosis, I mean, it was interesting that you were on the board, you know, the national board, and then to actually come down with the disease. How did that hit you, you know, when you first got diagnosed? What was your response?
3: Well, my response was uh, total shock. Um, my partner, Candy, and I, when we went and got our the um Diagnosis from the neurologist um, that wasn't what we were expecting and um, so i just i remember very very vividly <clears throat> when um, the doctor said that to me that uh, I closed my eyes and I could see a room uh full of open doors with sunlight outside and all of those doors then shut and I was in the dark and kind of in my own world for 20 seconds and I um, could remember uh, Candy kind of calling me back to the room and um, then the we asked about you know prognosis and treatment and that kind of thing and the neurologist said to me uh, something that I'll also never forget, and that is your world will progressively shrink until it becomes the size of the chair you're sitting in. And that Ooh. was the way he described my future.
1: Wow. Wow. And that's not something anybody would want to hear
3: on that, or no. I sure
1: wouldn't anyway. <laughs> oh, <No. No. laughs> wow. That, yeah, that kind of doesn't give you a whole lot of hope, I wouldn't imagine.
3: No, no, and that was um, probably the takeaway from that meeting. I mean, I um, went home and did some online research, and this was, you have to remember, um, six years ago, and things have changed a lot over six years, but... You know, basically there was a lot of information on there that, you know, people, um, progress and usually, uh, die in seven to 10 years Mm -hmm. and not much about early stage, um, Alzheimer's at all at the time. And so, you know, I, uh, quit my job. I talked to my boss, and, uh, you know, uh, she offered supports and this and that. And, I, you know, after we talked for about an hour, I mean, we both realized that the level of job I had, I was not going to be able to continue. And so uh, figuring I was going to, you know, rapidly deteriorate and uh, die in seven years, um I quit my job and went home and sat in my favorite chair. I figured if I was going to, my world was going to shrink to the size of a chair, i picked the chair I wanted. So that was my initial reaction to all of this.
1: Wow. And six years later, here you are, splitting around the country, talking, doing radio interviews, and uh, yeah, it's still amazes me though that so many are t- are still being told this you know short-term you know diagnosis and, and they don't know i mean i i am a firm believer that they don't know just like they don't know with cancer you know my dad they said it, we pushed them you know we wanted answers we wanted answers you know and so we pushed the doctor and he said you know a year year and a half well we were blessed to have them four and a half years and um You know, but I think sometimes it's because we push for those answers, the doctors feel they have to give them to us. And and sometimes I think it's just because the doctors just really aren't educated in terms Mm -hmm. of the process, you know, depending on on who you're talking to. And um, I I have been told a zillion times, oh, your mom couldn't have had dementia for 30 years. (laughs) Hello, we've been living it. Um, you know she wasn't diagnosed right away because the doctors poo-pooed it to hormone you can call it whatever you want but she had you know significant memory loss she was aware of it she made journals to help keep herself on track and instructions on how to do things and you know and then when she finally got diagnosed you know they said she's had the mentality of a three-year-old and so you know I mean, they can tell me it wasn't dementia, but, you know, myself and my family are not going to believe that at all, right. you know, um, we well, you know what the changes are.
3: I have a friend who um, was on the early stage advisory group with me and was diagnosed about the same time I was, and she was in her, I believe, late 70s when she was diagnosed, but, a, you know, very bright, very sharp woman. Um And I saw her this spring in Washington at our National Advocacy Conference, and uh, she was still doing very well. And she told me that her doctor, uh, she had a visit like a month before, and her doctor told her that she couldn't possibly have Alzheimer's because she was still doing so well after six years.
1: (sighs) Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we so don't know what this disease is, <laughs> you know, as a society. Um, it just, it, it kind of amazes me. One of um, one of the things that I struggle with is I know that we need research, and you may disagree with this, and that's perfectly fine, because uh, I think everybody has their own opinions. But, I, uh, you know, I, I struggle with all the money being put into research right now when we really don't know what this disease is. You know, or or what we need to go after it. I mean, I know that there's deterioration in the brain, but we really don't know the side effects of that. Because I, I personally believe so many of the effects can be um, changed if we change our environment and if we change our approach. You know, and we can alleviate them with without without a pill. And um, I, you know. I could I could be wrong, but that's that's my personal belief. On my 30-year journey, I've just seen so many things that were issues didn't have to be issues if we changed our approach or the environment in which we we did them. And um and then that makes the whole, you know, drug thing, you know, a different ball of wax of what it is that we need and why we need it and, and stuff. Well, Any thoughts was- on
3: on that? The world is uh, catching up with you, Lori, I think. Um, I think we felt, um, I mean, you have 30 years of experience with this, and I have six. I mean, I knew (laughs) nothing about Alzheimer's pretty much before I was diagnosed. But, you know, the the big push um, has been um, around the amyloid theory. Mm -hmm. And all the research basically is around amyloid and tau, which is the Mm -hmm. other uh, contending player. And uh, I think it's in the last two years, year and a half maybe, um, that we are now, because of all the failures Mm -hmm. in broad research, we are now looking not at other things necessarily, but looking at what you just talked about.
0: Mm-hmm. We are
3: looking at uh, basic brain science and chemistry. We are looking at intervening much earlier. What are the early, you know, uh, what causes these uh, this plaque to accumulate in, in a brain with Alzheimer's, um, and um, so i think that lifestyle issues prevention is now being funded um and they're starting uh research trials on people before they show symptoms in populations mm-hmm. where you know there's a very high percentage of people that they know are going to get the disease so i think the world is um uh, the research world is kind of catching up with your philosophy at this point <laughs>
1: yeah it's it's interesting, and you know and I mean, I think we need the drug companies. don't get me wrong there and the alzheimer's studies um group com i mean they've got some trials going on for tau right now, so you know please feel free to to go there uh because we do need that information, but I think it it's the whole balance of the approach that you know any drug we get is going to take a long time to get through this process. Mm -hmm. And, um, to know that it's safe. And, you know, I just look around going, people can't wait. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I've created the platforms that I've created was because, you know, I was a frustrated daughter, um, going, I I need different types of information. I don't need statistics. I don't need things that are going to depress me. I need, and I need, I need knowledge. But what I need the most knowledge of is how do I live a positive life and how do i allow my mom to live a positive dignified respectful life with this disease how do we continue to have our relationship how do we move forward with a life you know not focusing on this death sentence but focus on living you know mm-hmm. and and being productive and being engaged and you know, that's why I created Alzheimer Speaks, was just to talk about those things and try to connect people to best practices and different resources. and. And not being um, judge and jury over what the next guy needs, because what you might need is probably totally different than what my mom needs or what Michael needs or our listeners need. Because, you know, we all have different personalities. We all have different um, medical and health needs. We all have different personality styles. We have different resources and so I I found it really frustrating to be told this is what there you know this is the one way to deal with it because I I just I don't see that <laughs> and I don't feel the, I don't feel the love there for a, for a one answer um deal you know I think it's a toolbox and I and I think it's uh you know it's a living laboratory of you know how do we do this well,
3: just like the rest of our life is <laughs>
1: you
3: know? right. Well, I mean one of the biggest criticisms of um uh, resource allocation um, in research and just you know federal dollars um, that are applied to Alzheimer's is that you know the vast majority of uh, money goes into um, uh, you know research funding for uh finding a cure mm-hmm. and Even though there are millions of people with the disease, and as you pointed out, even if they, you know, this year found a promising candidate, it would be four years before people were getting it. Mm -hmm. And there'll be another million people with Alzheimer's. And, you know, where's funding for how to live with Alzheimer's? Yep. And for resources for people like yourself. Uh, caring for people with alzheimer's and for the people with alzheimer 's themselves um, and so that is a very um common criticism um and it's you know it's when I was sitting on the the national board, we had to develop a you know a strategic plan for the organization, the national organization, which is you know almost eighty chapters and and national and it was like well where do we put our resources and it's a very you know it's a very tight and tough line um to walk um i was sitting there at the time as one of two people with the disease on the board and you know i'm thinking to myself i'm going to need resources <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. expect they're going to find a cure for me But I'm going to need resources And so um, Should I put you know My two cents worth um, Into um, Allocating more Researches for programming And funding for care Partners and caregivers And um, Or into research And what I finally decided was um, That there wasn't going to be enough resource. We couldn't, there isn't enough resources to take care of the increasing number of people with Alzheimer's if we don't find a way to slow it down or um, cure it. Yeah. And even though during this period of time, for those of us with the disease and our families, it's a rough go Um if we put our, say we put all the research money into, you know, taking care of people with Alzheimer's and lifestyle modifications and funding for transportation and reimbursement for uh, caregivers, you know, so they could get paid something for staying at home and taking care of people. And, um, in you know, in 20 years, there's going to be, 12 million people with Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and we couldn't, there's no way we could afford to continue to do that. So, like I said, it's it's a very tough um, decision to make about allocating those resources, and I, I am happy to see that the research money is now, like I said, being spread out in a, in a way that um, looks at uh, uh, lifestyle issues and prevention and um, programming, so best practices for programming for people with Alzheimer's. Um, so we've kind of come off that very narrow focus of just looking at one or two things, um, which is, is hopeful and I think will, you know, certainly move the effort towards um, a disease-altering uh, treatment of some kind uh, just as much as focusing on one narrow thing would.
1: Yeah. I You know, I'm just so big into the collaboration and getting getting communities to work together, getting organizations to work together. And for me, I think that's been one of the most frustrating things is, um, organizations not being willing to work collaboratively, everybody wanting to have their, their own proprietary thing, thinking it's the magic bullet. And none of us have the magic bullets on this. This is, you know this I, I firmly believe the disease is here to teach us how to live well together again. And um, I, I think as a world, we've gotten away from that. And really pretty destructive in terms of our economics and our, our um, engagement and, you know, the whole nine yards. And, and I think, you know, we're being forced now because of our economic times to have to work together, which I think are some huge gifts. Because, you know, let people do what they're good at so then we can build even more resources and, and pool them. And, you know, the ownership thing uh, none of us own this disease, you know, nobody wants to. You know? <laughs> right. Um, anyways, I, I hope to God, not. but, um, you know, it's, it's not, this shouldn't be about um, making money. And I know business is all about being profitable. And I think there's a big difference between um, being profitable and also being socially um, conscious and, um you know participating doing kind of the greater good type work and I think that we can invest less if we all pitch in you know we can invest less time we can invest less resources um, you know if we work together and stop thinking that we have to control it and it has to be our our own little baby. You know, that's, again, with Alzheimer's Speaks, that's one of the reasons I developed the resource directory was so that everybody can have input because I think everybody's voice is valid. You know, everyone might not agree with me. They might not agree with you, and I I think that's okay. I think that's sure. part of having a conversation. Um, right. i don't think there sh- I don't think there should be fear about that. I think we need to let people make their own choices, and you know litigation's gotten so tough because you know we we don't let people make choices we don't let them be responsible. Well whose fault is that <laughs> you know, we've kind of set that up so um i I really think that that's that's very very important um in terms of what's going on what what do you think people really want to know i mean if someone who um you know in the future might get diagnosed with alzheimer's disease or dementia what do you think they really need to know before before they even hear that that word
3: well i think um people need to have a uh, sort of a functional diagnosis first. Uh, And by that, I mean, this is how you're functioning right now. These are uh, things that you used to do better. You're not doing as well now. Um, And then, you know, once you've sort of set the stage for people's awareness of, of how they are in the world, because oftentimes um, with the disease, um, uh, we aren't a- always aware of everything that, you know, has changed within us.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: we have to rely on other people, um, which, believe me, is not easy <laughs> to tell us, <laughs> Um you know, uh, what's changed and what we're not doing so well at. Um, and so to have a sort of basic grounding in where we are and how we're functioning, I think, um, is the place to begin. And, you know, the diagnosis is important, um, for reasons of, you know, research participation and, um, Understanding. I mean, people like to have a diagnosis. They, they, no matter what it is, good or bad, mm-hmm. um, it's very hard to live with a condition without a diagnosis. And so, getting to the point of giving someone a probable diagnosis, or now increasingly a, a definitive diagnosis um, of, of Alzheimer's, I think is is important but the piece as we talked about you know much earlier um that i think is missing um is then okay given this diagnosis and given how you're functioning now there's lots you can do mm-hmm. and there's lots that you're going to be able to continue to do um And there are workarounds for some of the things that you're having problems with. Um, But um, these things are normal um, symptoms of uh, anything that causes dementia. And so instead of, you know, just saying, well, Here's the the test results. You got shrinkage here, and you got less PET activity here, and um, your scores are, you know, this much lower, and you have Alzheimer's, and goodbye. Um, you know, uh, come back in a year, and we'll check you again.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Is you know certainly not helpful to people. Um, it, for me, I mean, I had a very good workup. Um, The second time around first time I didn't But the second time I went um, I got an extremely thorough workup And um, had lots of confidence In uh, the chief of neurology At this medical center that I went to And he did a great job He was very compassionate And he spent over an hour with Candy and I Going through everything (laughs) But he didn't even then say and here's some resources like there's the Alzheimer's Association Um, or you know there's these two medications you could I mean it was like okay you have Alzheimer's and uh, your world's going to shrink to the size of the chair and you know we'll see you in a year Mm
0: -hmm.
3: and so it left us nowhere I mean except in like you said in despair and so that's what I would you know hope for um, Mm -hmm. that complete picture would be given and a functional picture would be given and resources would be talked about and um, um, the hope that goes along with this you know very very serious lethal disease uh, diagnosis, but um, that life doesn't end. And it took me, you know, a good six to eight months to figure out that even though I was going to die from Alzheimer's, most likely, um, I had to learn to live with it as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and no one told me that there was life after diagnosis.
1: And that's so sad. I, that's just so so sad but that's part of breaking down the myths and um, the misconceptions you know with this disease and that's why it's so important to be able to hear you know hear your voice and hear others like you talk about you know what it's really like to have this disease because it's not what we think <laughs> you know it's not what we think at all and right. um, and it's so it's you know, giving people hope and giving people permission to live with yes. this disease. You know, one of my sayings is, um, I, I, and one of my goals is to get people to learn how to live with the disease, not as it. And I think for a long, long time we have been treating people as a disease instead of treating them as, as a person with a disease. And it's a huge difference on which comes first and how we look at them and, and how we engage with them. And, I mean, my gosh, there's probably very few people in this world that don't have some kind of disease, you know. Um, and we don't walk around and, you know, say, oh, hi, Mr. Diabetes and Mr. Heart Disease. And, oh, gosh, she has got several, you know. And we don't, right. we don't address right. people like that. but we we do tend to do that with somebody with alzheimer's disease in a really strange fashion and it's it's too bad it's it's really so sad people picture this disease as only end stages and you know they're just shocked i mean there there'll be a lot of people listening to the show today that will be shocked that you can have a conversation with me
3: yes isn't that amazing
1: yeah yeah, and you know, how did we let that happen for so long?
3: Well, you know, you know in all in, in all fairness, I think <laughs> I think it has to do with the fact that our vision, both medically and personally, from our own just experience, um, in thinking about Alzheimer's uh, in the past. Has been people in the late stages of Alzheimer, mid to late stages of Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. and honestly, a lot of those people, you know, have difficulty having a conversation and don't know other people. Um, And put as you, you know, your previous uh, when you were talking in between the, the last speaker and myself. You know, the, the grandmother that put her underwear in the refrigerator. Yeah. I mean, that do those kinds of things. And that's our image. Old, mm-hmm. very old, old, wheelchair-bound, um, for the most part, or very inactive, uh, people that say strange things, don't recognize their children and grandchildren, um, and do strange things. Mm-hmm. um wander, get lost, don't know their way home. um and it's only been I think in the last 6-8 years that as we are getting uh better at diagnosing Alzheimer's or recognizing its symptoms that we a new image or a new picture of a person with this disease in the beginning stages is becoming clearer. Mm-hmm. It's not I mean, we got a long way to go, trust me. Um because like you you know pointed out, um today, even today, um many people still have that old image in their head because they haven't seen a lot of people like me. Yep. yep. And um But that's changing. I mean, because more and more people like me are getting diagnosed, and more and more people like me, um, you know, have to talk about the fact, because they're young, um, Mm
0: -hmm.
3: that they have Alzheimer's disease, so their family has to talk about it. It's not like, you know, we can still hide people away, lock them in a room when company comes.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, You know, we're out there. And, um you know, people have, see what we can do and what we can't do, and we have conversations with people. Um, so I think that it's the, the closer we get to the beginning of this disease, and that's changed dramatically in, in the last few years, um, our understanding of when this disease process starts, um, I think the more that image will change. Well, and
1: I look at, I mean, you know, one of my heroes in all this is Norms McNamara over in the UK
3: and, yep. you know, what
1: he has done, you know, for this disease by just speaking out and not being afraid. And, you know, I, I really think, you know, we have to get society as a large to understand this is not a disease of one. This is a disease that affects all of us. And we have to change how we deliver our our business strategies um, in terms of delivering you know service to our to our clientele. So um, you know, and, and right now people think, well, Alzheimer's, you know, dementia that's that's healthcare. You know, I'm a manufacturer, I'm a coffee shop, or I'm a restaurant. That doesn't affect me. Well, hello. Who do you think your clients are? Who do you think your customers are? You know, and if they're not somebody that that is diagnosed, there's somebody who's caring for them, and so very, very important. It looks like we've got a caller on the line. Do you mind if we take a caller? Sure. Okay. Um, you are live on the air from a two one five number. If you wouldn't mind stating your name, we'd love to hear your question or comment. I just in called
4: in. I, I did not ask to speak, but I, I just uh, called in. This is Mike Wellenbogen.
1: I thought that was you, and I knew that I, I saw that you hadn't pushed the one, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to check anyways. You always have something to say. So <laughs> uh, so any any comments on our conversation so far, Michael? I know you're you're just doing some amazing things. Michael's going to be joining us on Dementia Chats this afternoon, um, which uh-huh. is our webinar webinar series as well.
4: Well, I just uh, heard the last uh, tail end of, uh, I guess, what Steve had said. And uh, I have not heard the rest of uh, what's been going on here. I was uh, busy on other things. But I I think he made a really good point is that I I think what's really starting to happen is it's people like Steve who is making a huge difference out there that they're coming forward and speaking about it. I think that's what's changed. People were afraid to speak about it. And because people like he is speaking out there and the Norm McNamara are out there who are speaking about it, that is what's bringing other people, what I consider, out of the closet and wanting to speak about it.
3: And mm-hmm. I think that's
4: what is creating this change in our society that people are starting to look at it differently. And it's going to take a long time, but I think with a lot of people who keep speaking up, I think we're going to make a difference and change it, you know, the way people think about this disease.
1: I, I agree. And to me, what all of you are doing and what I try to do as well is to remove the fear. You know, when we have these open conversations, we remove the fear that is so tightly wrapped in this disease. And, um, I mean, I can name a, a lot of friends and family who who just, they hate conflict, so they skidoot. You know, if they don't know how to handle it or if it's uncomfortable, <laughs> They're out of there, and right. that's what this disease does. For a lot of people, it's just like, mm, not comfortable. Okay, see right. ya. <laughs> you know? right. And and now we're having these normal conversations, and we're talking about practical things that really aren't that difficult, and we're we're acknowledging the feelings and saying we don't have to be our feelings. Um, and that there's new, different ways, and there's this support out there, and people are getting really energized by that, going, I mean, it's like this wealth of information people didn't even know was there, and it was connecting the dots. So I, I think you're right, Michael, I think these conversations are, are very important, and, and for me, one of the things that I love to see is people's voice. Get stronger and come out. Um, a, an example I'll give t- tomorrow actually, our memory cafe is going to be um, doing a little panel presentation to one of our communities. And, you know, a year, two years ago, nobody would get on a panel. I mean, it was hard enough for them to come in the door to come to the memory cafe and now uh, you know the other week they met with a um, a news producer and are going to be you know part of a feature and and now they're going out and speaking on a panel and they're so excited they're so excited and and they know how important their voice is because they know how lost they felt yes and and they don't want others to feel that and um
3: and, Lori, there's – um and, Michael, are you still there? Yes, I am. Hi. How are you? Um, think of the potential. We estimate there are over 200,000 people in this country with early-onset Alzheimer's, early-age, early-onset Alzheimer's disease. If we had 200,000 people who still have their voice out there, doing these things, like you were describing, Laurie, and doing what Michael's doing, and doing what I'm doing, um, imagine the impact that would have. Massive. But uh, sadly, there are very few of us. I mean, on the national scene, uh, you know, I can count, I don't know about you, Michael, but I can count on two hands the number of people that are out there speaking. Um And so we can't rely on just organizations like the Alzheimer's Association to get this job done.
1: We have to
3: be out there doing it as well.
1: And don't you think part of it is, you know, if if we wait for organizations, then we have to wait for platforms to speak on and that's you know right. like with with Norms he just like hey I'm going into a shopkeeper and I'm going to just talk to him about dementia. I mean that's how the Purple Angel got started. You know, right. and being right. dementia aware is do the one-on-ones are just as important as the big platforms.
0: Absolutely. Uh, but
1: but having multiple platforms and uh, and again on, on Alzheimer's Speaks, one of the reasons I developed the the radio show and the webinars and the blogs is to get those voices raised and to have them um, where they're archived, where people can go ahead and access them. Because, you know, life is busy, you know, out there. Yes. And so, um, you know, having things videotaped and the YouTubes, and I mean, there's so many great resources out there uh-huh. and so many wonderful voices to hear. Um, we just need to connect the dots, um, you know, and explore this more. And you guys, um, you you lead by example. So, you know, by being the Richard Taylors and the Norms and, you know, the Harry Urbans and the Mike Allenboggins and, you know, the, the Dr. Steve Humes. I mean, you guys are all leading by example and making it easier for those with a diagnosis to say, hey, I could do that. Mm-hmm. I can tell my story. You know, this isn't scripted this is talking from the heart about how life feels and what it's like and and the insights you guys give are are mind blowing are just i mean and i hear that all the time through our dementia chats and and also through the radio shows of of what people learn um by just having these real conversations by just taking the time to listen you know so important, right. so important um, what what are your thoughts um Steve, about funding for for a d research for you know other major diseases versus versus Alzheimer's disease and dementia, and I know Michael, you probably have an opinion on that as well, <laughs> but I'll <laughs> let Steve go first
3: well, I mean obviously uh, without going. unless you want me to all the statistics about that and the data I mean we are for the number of people who have the disease and the number of people who are projected to have the disease um, we are funded at a pitiful um, I emphasize that pitiful level Um, and I think we're, you know, doing sort of the best we can with the money we have. Um, But um, people just don't seem to get, and I, you know, I'm a psychologist by training, and so I can come up with lots of um, uh, theories about why people don't uh, get it. But, uh, you know, you walk into... uh, someone in Congress uh, through their office and not someone who's in favor of increasing funding, but someone who's not. And you go through the facts and figures, you know, about the number of people with the disease, the number who are going to get it, um, the cost of treating those people. It's now the most expensive disease to treat
0: um,
3: (laughs) in our country. And what it's going to cost and the fact that it's going to um, break Um, Medicare and Medicaid in X number of years because we just it'll be in the trillions of dollars that we'll be spending Um, and you say to them and you know these facts and figures come from your own government sources Uh, they're not coming from you know some private source they're coming right from the government and your own scientists now agree that um, this is all the way it's happening and it's going to happen. And so, do you kind of accept those facts? Yeah, yeah. Well, they seem legitimate. Yep. And so, therefore, doesn't it make sense to spend one hundredth or one twentieth of that money? On research that can slow down this disease or cure it um, and save hundreds of billions of dollars. Well, there isn't any money. I'm sorry, you know. It's there's a disconnect there, and mm-hmm. so you have to assume, with all the you know the negative press that Congress has been getting, uh, that all Congress people in Congress are not stupid. They're not all um ignorant um there's many bright people there um and people that care about what's going on in this country so what why is there a disconnect it just makes absolutely no logical sense Um, Mm -hmm. and the when someone tells me that there is no money i mean that's ridiculous there's money for everything it's what your values are yeah we all yeah. all of us as individuals human beings make decisions about how and where we spend our own money every day and those decisions are based on our values and congress does the same thing with the federal money mm-hmm. all money is spent based on our values now the cynical among us uh, may say, well, all people in Congress value is getting reelected. So they spend money based on who's going to get them reelected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and on and on and on. But, I mean, the basic premise I believe is true. And so when someone tells me there is no money, I say, okay, you are cool. saying then that. According to your values, you are not willing to spend any more money on curing this disease. You are not willing to spend the money now to save the countries financially in the future. And you are not willing to spend any money to save my life and the lives of millions of other Americans, including possibly yourself, because you have other values about where you want to spend the money.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: So... Well,
1: interesting. Michael, anything you want to add on on funding?
4: I think he did a good job there, but the only thing I would like to say, and I, I know he's put it very nicely, I believe we have discrimination against people with dementia in this world. Uh, I mean, NIH was formed in order to combat the most progressive diseases and we're living with the most progressive disease right now and they're doing nothing about it.
1: Good good point. Good point. When you look at how long it takes for someone to be able to get on disability and stuff, it just just makes me feel so sad that people have to struggle for as long as they do um you know with this whole with this whole process and disease in terms of of getting support. Well, I can't believe that our time has just kind of flown through here. Um, We've got a few minutes left, Steve, and I'm just wondering um, if there is anything that you would like to share with care partners that might help them in terms of dealing with a loved one with the disease.
3: Well, I think that um, uh, certainly... I can speak from my own experience and that of uh, my partner. Um, it's a disease, as you had mentioned, and I certainly agree with. It's a disease that is equally affecting both people. Um, I, when I was first diagnosed, um felt it was just happening to me. Mm-hmm. But I realized, you know, after not too long a period of time, in my mind at least, um, that this was equally, if not more, having an effect on my partner, Candy. And we're in this together. And, I, I you know, I believe, and I told her recently that, you know, I've gone through the hardest part for me. Getting the diagnosis and having to leave work and all that was the hardest part for me. She has yet to have to go through the hardest part for her, and her hard part will last a lot longer than mine. Um, But I think on a day-to-day basis, in the beginning stages, especially of this disease, it's a it's a redefining of the relationship and being able to talk about it and not just one person pointing out to the other what they're doing wrong <clears throat> um and the other person not with the disease not coming back you know and 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 being defensive um, it's a dance back and forth mm-hmm. because In my case in our case um candy you know wanted to take care of me and so her natural impulse was to take over and protect me from you know either getting hurt or making a bad decision or whatever it was and you know so we have had to talk about you know i have had to say to her back off um I can do this, and let me do as much as I can, um, and then just a little more. (laughs)
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And if I fall on my face, I fall on my face. Um, But sometimes in relationships, the partner out of love and care and concern takes over and the other person with the disease gets de-skilled and that will just push the process of deterioration at a much more rapid pace Mm
0: -hmm. but it's
3: very hard for the person with the disease, I mean with those caring for the person with the disease to to let us kind of do what we can do um, and keep us functioning as well as we can And the most important thing, as with all relationships, Lori, is being able to talk about it. If you weren't able to talk about things before someone in your family gets Alzheimer's, it's kind of late to start talking about it, but um, those who have better communication skills before do better. And, you know, it's even more important than to sit down and learn and how to talk to each other, because... Um, you can't assume anything with this disease
1: very true very true. Well, I appreciate all your time today um this has just been a really fascinating discussion, and I would love to have you you know come back on the show again and um and share your your thoughts and wisdom with us. It's it's just been a, a really interesting, interesting um, conversation, and I think one that will be enlightening for for many, uh, many, many people. Um, any any last comments that you want to add there at all, Steve?
3: Well, Before just I... that I, I wanted to thank you, Lori, um, because it's people like you, and there aren't a lot of people like you who offer forums like this and put your energy, your time, your money um, into um, giving us a place where we can talk and share with each other. And that is so um, critical for not only for, you know, um, people listening, but for ourselves, the people with the disease, to have a place where we can share and feel, um, you know, that our life has, still has meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. So I thank yeah.
1: you for that. I agree. Well thank you. Thank you. Michael, I know you're still with us. Anything else you'd like to add? I have nothing. You have nothing. Oh you're full of it. You're full of information and insight. You're just shaving <laughs> it up for dementia chats so a little later. You're such a little mover and shaker. So um I'll be looking forward to to talking with you um in a couple of in a couple of hours. Um, And for our listeners, if you're interested in joining us on Dementia Chats, uh, please do so. We have a Facebook page that will give you the link there, or you can go to alzheimerspeaks.com and uh, find out information on Dementia Chats there as well. Uh, Those are free webinars. Those are all archived as well. Again, I want to remind people, if you haven't, listen to the last radio show about the wristband project for hospitals, I would encourage you to do that. Um, That is just a um, a great, great uh, resource and I think one that'll be very beneficial to to many, many others. Um, Steve, do you have uh, contact information that you want people to have for you or would would you prefer that they just... Okay, and Um, what contact information would you like them to have?
3: Uh, best way to reach me is through my um, email, as with most folks. Um, and my email address is F is in Frank, B is in Boy, R as in Red, A is an Apple, P is in Paul. F B R A P at aol.com
1: wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all your time and your insights and I look forward to listening and hearing from you in the future Steve.
3: Well, thank you very much. I hope to do that.
1: Okay, bye now.
3: Bye. For the rest for the rest of our listeners here,
1: um, again, if you're looking for uh, some information and support, please feel free to go to Alzheimer's Disease International. There you'll be able to find any of the Alzheimer's associations throughout the world that can assist you. Or you can always go to alzheimer'sspeaks.com and check out our resource directory are in the process of building that and you can also input your information. What resources have you found to be helpful? Is it a business? Is it a service? Is it a tool? um, Or a product like a book? Um, All of those things can be input uh, into the directory. So if you have some some information that you would like to share with others, reach out to me. Just go to the contact button on alzheimerspeaks.com and in your subject line Note uh, information on the resource directory, and I will send you instructions on how to how to partake in that. Um, Steve had also mentioned the tau studies, and so again, those are 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 ones that are out there, and you can go to Alzheimer's studies dot com, uh, to find out about their clinical trials as well so in the meantime have a wonderful wonderful week again our next show is going to be on the 16th and that is going to be an evening show at 8pm with uh, the Australian Early Onset Dementia Group it will be a fabulous conversation and hope you can join us
4: have a wonderful week. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebasti, host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement.